Hey friends, just quickly, my new book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. Get it from plantproof.com forward slash book. Thanks so much for all your ongoing support, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Stroke is essentially the second leading cause of death in the entire world, and about 5.5 million deaths are attributed to stroke in the world. Like Dean said earlier, you know, the number is just crazy. In the United States, more than 800,000 people, and every three and a half minutes, somebody dies from a stroke. That ends up to close to about 410 people dying of stroke every single day. Up to 55 men and women are equal. And then after 55 men have disproportionately higher proclivity. I mean, we're still trying to understand that whether, you know, estrogen in women seems to have any protective effect at that later years. But it seems that men have more vascular risk factors than women and end up having more strokes. But then after age 75, again, they, the risk actually becomes the same for men and women. That's Drs. Dean and Aisha Shirzai. And this is episode 97 of the Plant Proof Podcast. Hi friends, welcome back. Great to be here with you again. Hope you're doing well. For first time listeners, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for gracing us with your presence. I'm Simon Hill, the host of this show, author, nutritionist, and physiotherapist. In today's episode, I have two crowd favorites, the ultimate husband and wife experts in all things brain-related, back sharing knowledge and wisdom with this community. Can you guess who? If you guessed Drs. Dean and Aisha Scherzai, you would be right. They are back this time round for a deep dive into stroke, a particular type of cardiovascular disease which affects the brain. Specifically, we cover the different forms of stroke, how common stroke is, what increases our risk of stroke, eating to lower our risk of stroke, etc. It is another banger of an episode. These two just love dropping knowledge bombs. Please sit back and relax or grab a notepad and pen, whatever you prefer. This is me and Team Sherzai. I'll catch you on the other side. Dean and Aisha, welcome back to the Plant Proof Podcast. So wonderful to be here again. Thank you for having us. Yeah, it feels like coming back to family. I know. How many times? Third, third time. It's the third time. Yeah. Yeah, getting up there. Lovely. I think uh, only only yourself and, and Dr. B have yeah. been on this many times. So. <laughs> That's <laughs> we're, great. We're That's awesome. Now, before we get into what I expect to be a really interesting episode on stroke, Tell me, I saw you did a post the other day on three things that you've done for your brain this week. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Are you asking us? I'm asking you guys. Oh, well, I think we're pretty good at walking the walk and talking the talk. Obviously, you know, with being in this field and having or taking on the responsibility of promoting brain health and dispersing the information, sometimes we become hypocrites and we break our own rules. I think, I'm going to start with a negative, Steen. I think where we fall short is sleep. There's just a lot going on. And we have two children, 15 and mm. uh, almost 13. So spending quality time with family sometimes takes priority and we don't get enough sleep. Yeah. But otherwise, I think we're pretty great when it comes to eating 
well. Mm-hmm. So we make sure that we eat our greens and our beans and our vegetables. So you tick that box without too much thinking. <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> yes. It's become a habit. It's become almost, you know, um, automatic. And when we don't do it, we feel it with every fiber in our body. We feel that, oh, we haven't eaten very well. And recently you've started the the Mind Kind Kitchen. Yes. It's an extension of that, right? We're so excited about that. Yes. It's, it's great. Thank so, you. Sophie is, uh, she's hilarious. She is. She, <laughs> oh my gosh. she has quite the sense of humor. <laughs> she cracks us up every single day. Oh, she's amazing. Yeah. And what else, Dean? Stress management is the big yes. thing. I mean, we think that stress management is at the core of all health. And if you can't manage stress well, forget about diet and, and nutrition and everything else, because stress affects the brain, the body, the immune system, everything moment to moment. And people understate the importance of it because we think we can't control it. We don't have a good handle on it, but it's incredibly important it really because is. of its uh, momentary instantaneous effect on hypothalamus and pituitary growth hormone, insulin, everything, the whole system, including the immune system. So what do you guys do to to help manage that, to de-stress? Something un, uh, that people should know is defining your stress. Right. Starting with defining your stress. Nobody does that. I mean, I think one of the best gifts you can give your kids is to actually clearly define the stress. I mean, we we take stress as a amoebic, amorphous thing that just we feel, we don't know what's happening. But define it. These are the bad stresses and these are the good stresses. And there are such things as good stresses. Right. The bad ones are the ones that are not driven by your purpose. They don't have clear direction. They don't have clear timelines. And they're just accumulating without ever reaching success. Your success point. Remember, the whole point of this brain, the evolution of this brain was success of survival. Capture data to succeed survival. But now we're doing a Mm -hmm. bunch of things that... Don't serve that clearly. So you We're, define it so you can see it. You, can, you have to. And then? And then you delegate, reduce, eliminate, and redefine. Yeah, that helps a lot. I think re- redefinition is something that helps me quite a bit because there are times when you have stress and you really can't do anything about it. It's just a part and parcel of every element of your life. And... I I know that it sounds magical, but almost like basically looking at the positive aspects of it or your the way you react to it, seeing the positivity in that reaction where, for example, you have a deadline and you you just remember that you're supposed to meet that deadline instead of completely losing it, reminding yourself like, okay, this is the way my body is getting ready for this intense moment and I'm going to embrace it and do my best. Well, that's a good point. I mean, you a lot of the time you can't control the situation you find yourself in, but you can control how you react. Exactly. Yes. The, the super athletes, the the high achieving athletes have done this without knowing so. You have this incredible core emotional component, which is the sympathetic parasympathetic system and the autonomic system. Parasympathetic calms you down, sympathetic revs you up, fight or flight. And your heart's beating fast. Your hands are getting clammy. You're getting nervous. There's tension building up in your muscles. The person that defines it poorly, and there's studies, and I'll tell you about the studies here. Very cool. That definition that they have in their head actually makes them fail. The other person says, oh, this clamminess, this nervousness, it's a competition. It's a challenge. It's going to push me. They've learned that somehow, subconscious. And it significantly increases their, their success rate. And their quality of life. 
So there are studies that have been done where this large group of population, two groups, large enough where you can say that all the elements were considered. Same task with a test at the end. One group was given the positive words. This is challenging. This is good. I'm going to succeed. Even if I fail, it's going to make me better. I'm going to grow. I'm going to grow. The other one was given the negative language. Oh, this is tough. And it's going to, you know, uh, it's going to overwhelm me. All the negative thought. And they went forward and took the task and took the test. And guess what? Significant success rate in the ones that had the positive language. So that redefinition of that autonomic response that's in you is critical because there's no way you can eliminate, delegate, or reduce all the stresses in life. And along with the successes, the outcome, when they looked at some of the biomarkers, blood pressure, cortisol levels, they actually had completely different physiological responses too, just based on language, just based on the way they defined it. Now, imagine this. We talk about these big, blunt mechanisms of brain health. Moment by moment, how you define your stress by your limbic system and your frontal lobe sends a different message to your hypothalamus. If it's good stress, by, by, by definition. The, the, by that definition, though, you, are you saying that you actually get to choose in some cases? Initially, you get to choose it overtly. After a while, it becomes your reflex if you keep doing it. Sure. Especially if it's done early in life. So, but, but even later in life, you can actually condition yourself to define positively. A different kind of message goes to the hypothalamus, which then sends a message to pituitary. We know what the pituitary is, the master gland. Bad stress, information goes down, cortisol goes up, adrenaline goes up, oxytocin goes down, your thyroid levels are offset, your testosterone, your insulin level, everything's thrown apart. And on top of that, your, um, your immune system is suppressed. We see samples of this. When people are, are under stress, you see them getting shingles, or they get, you know, the sores, which sores, is a viral. Yeah. And why does that happen? Because those are viruses that are dormant in cells. And when your immune system goes down, they come out. Imagine what it does to the rest of the body. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it obviously affects your gut as well immediately. Of it course. Does. It does. Yeah. Your gut is directly connected to your brain through the vagus nerve, which is the 10th cranial nerve, but also its own neural network. We now know that that neural network is so complex and has serotonin and, and indirectly dopamine. And the microbiome affects that response. That's why certain foods and certain environments create greater anxiety. It's not actually from the brain down. It's from the gut up. And so that definition and what you do with food and environment is critical to your brain health and, and emotional health for that matter. Mm. Okay, so, so that's number two. Number one was food. I'm, I'm, we're sticking with three. <laughs> we're going to work through it. You're not getting off that one. <laughs> okay. No. Yeah. Okay. Because okay. sleep wasn't one of them. Yes. You know? <laughs> yes. That's right. And you admitted that. So. Yeah, we did. We <laughs> yeah. did. Um, so stress, you're sort of automatically assessing what that stress is, redefining, trying to, to, to shift it to a good stress where yeah. possible. What's number three? I'm going to pick lifelong learning. I think one of the things that we're constantly doing is just learning, whether it's the latest research, whether it's pushing ourselves in front of people and putting ourselves in really uncomfortable situations. 
whether it's teaching or instructing or speaking, whether it's, you know, even involving the children in, in our projects and workshops and being very patient with them and empowering them. That's something think, that you guys make a conscious effort to oh, do. I mean, like all you've, the you've time. told me sort of off air and I can see it through social that there's a conscious effort to push them to, to beyond their sort of boundary. Yes, yes, absolutely. It's a, it's a very important aspect of our life. And we, we're doing it in a very selfish way, too. We just want them to join us one day and, you know, in whatever capacity it is to be involved in this whole teamwork of just making making a difference in life, you know? The most important tool you can give your kids is not information. You know, Alex is in college and, you know, all of that. We said that, and he's know, 15, 15? So he just turned 15. He's a yeah. second year college. And we, we, we always say, we don't care about your grades. He does great. That's not what's going to make a difference in this world. Courageous living, putting yourself in situations, of course, safety, but, but mm-hmm. as far as emotionally and, and putting yourself in situations where it's uncomfortable. Where you can grow. Where you can yeah. grow. That's the only time you can grow. Mm. Our natural tendency is to go to the cocoon, safety seeking, past protecting. The only way you can grow is put yourself in situations that are very uncomfortable, but meaningful. Even we were talking earlier, even when Aisha was in New York and Columbia, when we used to go on the train, we would have them, Sophie would, of course, she would sing and make jokes on the train all the time. Alex is a little more restrained, genetically speaking, from very early age. So he had to put a little more effort to be out there. So no, that's, that's, that's another thing that we do is make ourselves uncomfortable. And be okay with failure. You know, failure in that sense doesn't necessarily mean that you're not good at doing something, but accepting it as a mm. part of growth and moving forward. Yeah. Well, that's important if you're going to to keep challenging yourself. Right. Okay, cool. So we've got life learning. We've got eating well. Yes. And challenging yourself. There was a second one in there. That we oh, yeah. Well, you stress. Kind of, yeah, stress. it was stress. Yes, stress. Stress. Yes. yes. Okay. Food. Cool. Well, stress. I feel like anyone learning. listening to this episode <laughs> is at least ticking off life learning today, <laughs> and hopefully not sleep. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, this episode, stroke. I'm looking forward to. It's it's actually a disease I haven't covered yet. Yeah. Um, in nearly 100 episodes, so mm-hmm. quite interested to to dig into it and and understand about the enormity of it, how many people it's affecting, what the pathophysiology is of different types of stroke. So perhaps we we just start very top level, define some terms um, and sort of set the stage for how widespread this disease is. Yeah, no, I'm really excited that we're talking about this. Um, I'm actually a vascular neurologist, a stroke specialist. Uh, that was my specialty at Columbia University. And um so stroke essentially means when a part of the brain does not get enough oxygen and blood at a particular moment. And that can happen because of either blockage of an artery or due to a clot or just narrowing over time. Um, there are basically two different types of stroke. We have uh, what we call an ischemic stroke, which means that a clot or a blockage has stopped blood flow and 
then a hemorrhagic stroke, which means that there is damage to the artery wall where there's bleeding into the brain. In different populations, uh, you see different numbers, but ischemic stroke is way more than hemorrhagic strokes. About 85% of all strokes are ischemic and about 15 to 20% is hemorrhagic stroke. And it's a devastating disease. Basically, you know, people usually tend to have sudden onset of a neurological deficit, whether it's inability to speak or inability to see or numbness or weakness of one side of their body, whether it's an arm or a leg or just arm or just leg, whether it's inability to produce words or understand words, which we call aphasia. And there are different variations of it. It depends on which part of the brain is involved. And that, that latency period, like when you start experiencing symptoms like that, it's not long after that you would typically see an event. The brain is so susceptible to changes in the hemodynamics and blood supply that you see manifestations right away <laughs> within seconds to minutes. Depending on which part of the brain is involved, you know, the, usually the, the way people are educated about stroke is get yourself to the emergency room as soon as possible because the acute treatment has been focused on getting rid of that clot, whether it's with clot busting medication or whether going in and, you know, seeking some interventions like retrieving the clot mechanically. And it, it, it's pretty profound. So that's for like, is that more for ischemic? Yes, yes. For ischemic. That's yeah. what, what would that? What's the treatment? The initial sort of emergency emergency treatment for someone that has hemorrhagic. Stroke? So, so people are supposed to, you know, seek help as soon as possible within the first three or four and a half hours of the onset of stroke, and the typical treatment is TPA, tissue plasminogen activator, which is a kind of a medication that gets rid of the clot or or basically dissolves, dissolves the clot, and that is usually that can be given within those certain hours only. Anything beyond that, they go through multiple diagnostics, um, CT angiograms and MRIs and things of that nature to identify the positioning of the clot and then mechanical retrieval is is sought out afterwards. For, for hemorrhagic, there isn't much because hemorrhagic means that the vessel has burst. The best thing you can do is control it spreading. Yeah. Yeah, okay. It's so, it's the yeah. mass effect of the blood. It's pressing on very vital areas of the brain that usually ends up hurting people. And that's why the mortality rates because of hemorrhagic stroke are much higher than ischemic stroke because it's a closed box. And when there is bleeding, uncontrolled bleeding, it presses on the brain stem, which so is- the pressure is building up. Correct. That's and the right. brainstem actually holds the vitality, you know, wakefulness, even yeah. um, breathing centers. So what happens is the brain is pushed. There's nowhere to go except down. It goes down in a very small area where the brainstem is, and it actually pushes, and that stops the breathing centers. And so you mm -hmm. stop breathing. And, and you see all these other things as far as your cranial nerves, vision, okay. face, and all of that. On top of that, there is this condition called TIA. And that's important because transient ischemic attack is a stroke that goes away pretty quickly. And it tells you that, oh, another stroke might be coming. So if you catch it at TIA level, although a lot of times it do doesn't so that's, just transition, that's the alarm it just goes bell. directly to Correct. stroke. But if you catch it at TIA level, you can do the necessary things to not allow a stroke to happen. 
So how common is it that someone would have a TIA before they have a stroke event? So 15% of TIAs um, usually end up becoming a major stroke within the first month. Um, A lot of people call it mini strokes. You know, it's usually... For example, them having some deficits in their body, and then it goes away within 20 minutes to about an hour, and it doesn't leave any deficits. And they think that's fine. And that's where, you know, there's a lot of misunderstanding about TIA. But TIA basically is a a red herald saying there's something wrong with your arteries in the brain, and you have to do something about it. Um, And, you know, we work with a lot of TIA patients, and it's basically a combination of medication and lifestyle changes to prevent stroke from happening. And then there's a fourth category that we are very interested in, which is microvascular disease. It's not a stroke, but it's over time because of cholesterol and blood pressure and millions of these little vessels that are damaged throughout the brain. Either you see little holes, little strokes, little hemorrhages, or just a whiteout of the brain. And that's actually incredibly common, not very well studied. But that's what leads to cognitive decline. That's what leads to strokes eventually. So is that is that that's different to vascular dementia, or that's it can lead to vascular yeah, dementia. It's, it's, almost, it it's almost contiguous to vascular dementia. There's been a lot of research on TIAs, and now they believe that a lot of people who have TIAs or small strokes, they actually do have damage in their brain. There was it was initially considered that TIAs don't leave any damage in the brain, but our diagnostic tools, the MRIs that we have or the CT angiograms that we have, they're not strong enough. They're not specific enough to identify the small vessel damage that occurs in people who have a lot of vascular risk factors like high blood pressure and cholesterol or, you know, abnormal sugar levels. So you actually are having small damage to the, to the arteries. And even if people don't end up having any neurological deficit, they actually have co- vascular cognitive impairment later on. And most of these diseases are vascular, including Alzheimer's. So now with these new tools, we, we're, you know, seven Tesla MRIs, which are incredibly powerful. When they've looked at brains of people who've died and they've had Alzheimer's, even prior to amyloid deposition, which is one of the early signs, there was vascular disease. Yeah. So in many ways, a lot of the chronic diseases of aging, be it even Parkinson's, to a great extent, but even Alzheimer's, definitely a lot of the dementias, TIAs, of course, and stroke, all are vascular in origin, and they start decades earlier than the ultimate manifestation of it. So talk me through. So, so ischemic stroke is a similar sort of pathophysiology to what happens with coronary artery disease in terms of like atherosclerosis, right? That's right. So it's like the plaque building up. We can go through why that happens maybe in a minute, but yeah. And then the hemorrhagic stroke, mm-hmm. that vessel wall bursts, and you you get blood coming outside of the vessel right. into the brain. What's the sort of pathophysiology? What causes that blood vessel to become weak and, and burst? The weakness is usually there. Are, there are genetic diseases where people have these weaknesses in their walls. You know, the, you have a, a deposition of amyloid and the deposition of a sarcoid and all all these things that can make the vessel, but those are rare. Let's let's define amyloid. Uh, This amyloid is an abnormal protein that accumulates in tissues and and Mm -hmm. brain. And it's it's an abnormal protein that's related to aging, but it's also related to a lot of other chronic diseases. And, And it speaks to aging, where a process in the cell was doing the right thing and all of a sudden starts creating the abnormal protein. Other kind of abnormal protein that accumulates as a result of inflammation repeated chronic inflammation and all these proteins accumulate that cause damage. 
but that's the less common. The more common is blood pressure related. Yeah. The most common cause of hemorrhagic stroke is blood pressure, mm. hypertension, and we don't treat it well. We don't identify it well. How often? I mean, I, I always say that the moment we create a device that can continuously and in a valid way, in an, in an accurate way, can measure blood pressure continuously, healthcare mm. has changed overnight. That's true. Because yeah. at this point, we check blood pressure Maybe at home, some people check it, but it's actually less common than we think. Usually once every three months in a clinic. Checking something that vacillates from moment to moment, once every three months, something that affects your kidney primarily, mm -hmm. that affects your brain, that affects every organ significantly. Uh, so we don't have a good tool. And that's the main reason for hemorrhagic stroke. In fact, it's also a major reason for ischemic stroke. Absolutely, But yeah. definitely the main reason for hemorrhagic stroke. So from an ischemic stroke point of view, it's it's creating more like sheer force or something yes. that can help push that plaque off and cause a blockage. Yeah, or it causes enough damage where that damage in the tissue causes secondary accumulation of plaque and things like so that. So blood pressure naturally goes up as we get older. Is that right? Is yeah. That, is that with the arteries just becoming more stiffer. older? Yes, stiffer. Absolutely. Okay. But it doesn't necessarily have to become hypertensive is what you're saying. That's right. when the risk factor becomes for the hemorrhagic stroke. Mm -hmm. That's and right. let's let's loop back to that. Let's come back. Actually, let's, let's just talk about it now. You see various commentary around having very low LDL cholesterol mm. and that being a risk factor for hemorrhagic stroke. From some things I read, it seems like that low LDL in the context of also having high blood pressure seems to be the, the biggest issue. Is that something that you've looked at? Uh, so the data shows that, absolutely. The data is a little tenuous at this point. We really have to clarify that relationship. I mean, if the relationship is true, that's saying that that LDL is needed potentially. Of course, we're extrapolating too far, but it's saying that that LDL at a certain level is needed for the vitality of the vessels. Because if it goes down, then the vessels are weaker and blood, higher blood pressure breaks. But I think, and I think we agree, that it, that might not be the right relationship. I think, first of all, the analysis of the LDL is not accurate. Uh, a lot of the data that's coming, it's new, first of all, this relationship. and uh, Between hemorrhagic stroke and LDL. Correct. LDL. And then what caused that LDL to go down is also important. Was it medication or was it natural? It's a reverse causality. Correct. Mm -hmm. yeah. Correct. Exactly. The best thing we can say at this point, we need to study it more. Right. Sure. And we, it's, it's, not a, a, it's not a universal data. I mean, it has been replicated in, in smaller populations. So we're still waiting to understand it. That, but it bothers me because it causes a danger of people, you know, putting on the brakes with the concept of how important it is to lower LDL, which causes the majority of ischemic strokes. There's almost a causal relationship between high LDL and ischemic stroke. Well, that context is important. So flesh that out for me because you're, what you're saying is even if that was true, you'd still be better off because you're reducing your risk of something that's far more common. Absolutely. Oh, exponentially more common. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. A lot of times we make the mistake of uh, highlighting something that just was new data and stood out, but forgetting this huge iceberg that we're getting so many more people. Are, the numbers are just overwhelming. More than 800,000 people dying of strokes, ischemic stroke, mostly related to high LDL. So that's a number that we have to kind of speak about. 
And, you know, whether it's the pathophysiology of atherosclerosis or hardening of the arteries and, you know, from different lines of research, when you see high LDL causes damage to the arteries and in large populations, you do see that when you drastically reduce LDL, obviously with medication at this point, you reduce the size of the stroke, you reduce the size of penumbra, which is, you know, the the area around the stroke core in the brain, it actually starts uh, getting smaller as LDL falls. The vulnerable area. The vulnerable that area. That could be saved yeah. or be lost. That's this important landscape that you're fighting the first few hours after a stroke. To keep the, the stroke small and not let it expand. So yeah, I, okay. I, I, think, I think it's important for us to focus on reducing LDL as much as possible. With that said, we would expect there to be observational studies or, or clinical trials showing that people who have lower LDL or eating in a certain way or living a certain lifestyle have lower risk of stroke? Yes. Is that something that we we observe? We do, yes. And and, uh, we've uh, observed it in clinical trials um, of the the use of statins or LDL-lowering medication. We've seen it in uh, populations who have lower LDL cholesterols, like the Adventist Health Study, their cardiovascular mortality is lower. Um, So yes, there, there is evidence for that. Do we understand, I guess, for, for this disease, what component would you say is genetic? I know when you talk about Alzheimer's, you sort of flesh out what that genetic component would be versus lifestyle. What about for stroke and is it different for hemorrhagic and ischemic? It's very small. Um, depending on the series, you know, around five or so percent of all ischemic strokes are associated with some genetic risk factor. And usually those kind of strokes occur in in young age, you know, mm-hmm. in, when people in, are in their teens or 20s or 30s. Um, and there are different variations of yeah, it. Yeah, light and 5 abnormality, protein yes. C abnormality. These are the clotting pathways in the body. So they're genetically abnormal and and they come to the emergency room with a stroke at age 40, you almost are certain that this is related to some kind of abnormality in that pathway. Yeah, they usually have coagulation problems or clotting problems. And, you know, say, for example, if it occurs in women, they have problem with, you know, you know, multiple failed pregnancies and things of that nature. And we have a very, you know, concrete set of tests that are sent out for genetic panel to find out what they are, but they make a very small percentage of strokes. Let's go through the sort of modifiable risk factors for stroke, things that people can look at in their own lifestyle and in impact through the choices they make every day. We've we've spoken about cholesterol and, and high blood pressure. What are the other sort of risk factors in one's lifestyle that could increase their chance of, of having a stroke? And then let's come back back to some of that research that you were involved in that you did that looked at dietary pattern and stroke incidents. Yeah, absolutely. So as far as lifestyle is concerned, we know from um, a lot of great studies, actually one of the largest study that was done to look at um, the burden of stroke globally was the one that was uh, supported by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And it's incredible to find out that Stroke is essentially the second leading cause of death in the entire world, and about 5.5 million 
deaths are attributed to stroke in, in, in the world. And like Dean said earlier, you know, the numbers are just crazy in the United States, you know, more than 800,000 people. And every three and a half minutes, somebody dies from a stroke, which is crazy. I mean, by the end of this podcast, so many people would die. That would that ends up to uh, close to about four hundred and ten people dying of stroke every single day. And what's what's the average age? So I know that the pathology starts over many years, mm-hmm. decades. You know, yes. from, from one's lifestyle. But when are they? When are these events occurring usually? Up to fifty-five men and women are equal. Yeah, and then after fifty-five, men have disproportionately higher proclivity. Yeah, for is that strokes. is that because of certain things like blood pressure or correct? Right. I mean, we're still trying to understand that whether, you know, estrogen in women seems to be to have any protective effect at that later years. Um, but it seems that men have more vascular risk factors than than women mm. and end up having more strokes. But then after age 75, again, they, the risk actually becomes the same for men and women. Hey, friends, I hope you're enjoying this episode. It's Simon here. Just a quick intermission to remind you that my book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. In this book, I cover common myths about plant-based diets, evidence showing the potential health benefits that are up for grabs, the positive impact eating plant foods has on the planet, and much more. To order your copy, head to plantproof.com forward slash book, plantproof.com forward slash book. Okay, let's get back into it. So that many people are dying every three and a half minutes um, every year. The yeah. numbers you said, they're pretty huge. It's it the is. second leading cause of death in the world. Yes. But the other aspect is the ones that, that don't die are severely disabled, right? right? So like talk talk me through that. Like what is one's life or what can one's life look like? How, how does this impact, you know, the average person who has a stroke? It's horrible. So stroke is the most debilitating disease in the world which essentially means that the quality of life or the disability-adjusted life years are far worse than any other disease. You have individuals coming in, they're completely fine, and within minutes, they lose all functionalities. So the cost of not just medication and hospitalization, but the cost of taking care of these individuals after they have a stroke is enormous. It was close to about $70 billion only in the United States. And this is a country where we have resources for individuals with stroke. And think about all the other countries that don't provide any resources for these individuals. I, I just got done with, you know, reading some of the papers that came out from the International Stroke Conference, which was, you know, just a couple of, uh, last week, actually. And, you know, there's a lot of emphasis on acute stroke care, a lot of grants that support identification of stroke as soon as possible, um, making sure that the door-to-needle time, the door-to-needle time basically means the time when the patient is actually brought into the emergency and how fast do the nurse practitioners and doctors attend to that physician. That's and because how- there's there's a lack of oxygen to the brain. Agreed. And, like, and, and yes. the more time, more cell death. Yes, and so the motto is time is brain. So every mm. second spent is brain damage. So there is this incredible amount of urgency during that stage. And the door to needle time, needle meaning, meaning TPA or, or, or administration of the clot busting medication should be as short as possible. And all of the comprehensive stroke centers are trying to focus on keeping it less than 60 minutes. 
So a lot of money spent there, a lot of money spent on grants supporting ambulatory TPA administration. So ambulances giving TPA before they even get to the uh, emergency room, a lot of um, support for endovascular therapy, which means, you know, going through the groin with a needle and retrieving the clot mechanically if it's too late for them to get a TPA or if there's any other contraindication. So all of this focus there for what? Basically for making sure that the patient stays alive. And I wish that there were enough resources and enough attention on making sure that prevention is also Mm. prioritized as much as possible. uh, Like when I was just doing a bit of research to um, address this in in my book quickly when I talked about stroke, in Australia, if you look at the deaths from stroke, like they they are actually have come down since 1980. So yes. it kind of speaks to your point that right. like Western medicine has become good at perhaps helping lower the deaths a little bit, even though they're still huge. Absolutely. But keeping people alive with this very debilitating disease. And we're almost missing the point that it comes back to sort of health span versus mm-hmm. lifespan. Yeah. Yes. You know, so keeping people alive, but what's their quality of life like? Right, yeah. right. No, the the mortality rates have come down by 36% since 2010, which means that less people are dying, like you said. But the number of people having strokes and the prevalence of stroke is actually increasing. So we have more people mm. left with debilitating um, stroke symptoms, but yet they're not dying because we're doing a really, really good job at keeping them alive. The common things are where half the body is paralyzed or half the world doesn't exist. You know, hemianopsia, where it's not like they can't see there. The world doesn't exist. Yeah. Our perception of that part of the world is gone. Some really interesting stroke syndromes that kind of gives you an, a window into the human consciousness. But, but so, or language is lost. So the person understands everything, but they can't speak, mm-hmm. which it can be the most frustrating thing you can imagine. So they come to the emergency room. They have this debilitation, a thousand dollar. This is U.S. Fifteen hundred dollars, thousand to fifteen hundred dollars CT, three thousand dollar MRI, ten thousand dollar emergency room stay, thirty thousand dollar ICU stay. And if they get endovascular therapy, oh. that's another twenty thousand dollar procedure at the minimum. And then the re- the rehab. Like before, I did my master's in nutrition. I was a physiotherapist. Yeah, and I spent time doing rehab, and. A lot of the patients in rehab were, were had strokes, yes. and for many of them, they were like beginning learning skills like a child again yes. in terms of you know where they had the speech pathologist working with them, they had the physiotherapist uh, working with them, the occupational therapist teaching them basic movements yeah. and yeah. Um, working with them where they could. But inevitably, many of them were very very limited in what mm-hmm. they could do. Yeah. Correct, correct. Yeah. And after all that spending, all that work. You send them home with an aspirin and a cholesterol-lowering medicine. It doesn't get more cynical mm. than that. Just to and keep them alive. Just to keep them alive. Yeah. And, and, and actually getting worse a lot of times. And yet we know the data. And Aisha's done the biggest center. I'm part of the, being a husband, sometimes I get- This is the California State study. Yeah. Yeah. That one, yeah. 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 We'll come to and, that. and you can prevent much of this. More than 80% of strokes can be prevented. And that's just blunt- ischemic and hemorrhagic strokes. Not even talking about the one that's actually more prevalent that nobody talks about, which is the vascular disease that accumulates over time. All of that can be prevented, yet we still are focusing at the door to needle. And what's the outcome? The outcome's very unsuccessful. So talk to me about that, again about that vascular disease. So you're saying that that's underdiagnosed. What, what, like, what are the symptoms and are we just 
accepting it as part of aging? Is that sort of it how, is. how it's getting labeled? Yeah. And Aisha and I are not much fun in parties. We recognize this. We, you know, said so there's a, this, these symptoms called bradykinesia and bradyphrenia. Bradykinesia is a, the walking is a little slower than usual. And the bradyphrenia is the, the speaking and understanding is a millisecond off. People don't recognize because this has happened over time. So the family says, oh, this is just, no, that's actually vascular disease that is accumulated over time. And this is ubiquitous. It's everywhere. Yet we don't address it. We don't have a diagnosis for it. Or in US, we say there's no ICD-9 for it. Not really. Not, But that's the beginning of decline of your very self, your consciousness, your level of awareness, your level of response. All of that can be avoided through intervention, which is lifestyle intervention. California teacher study. Let's let's go through what you unearthed. Yeah, and I I feel lucky, and um, I'm really thrilled that I had this opportunity to work with a very large database called the California Teacher Study. Um, 133,000 women followed since the 1990s, mid 1990s until now, and multiple points of data collection. So these women were sent questionnaires on food and exercise and hormone use and general lifestyle. So we we got a lot of information on them and. Um, multiple other diseases have also been studied and investigated in this database. And so as a stroke fellow, I my job was to look at, or I basically chose to look at stroke and see how does lifestyle affect stroke and specifically diet. And, you know, one of the dietary patterns that has been studied the most is the Mediterranean diet. And I wanted to see what they essentially meant by Mediterranean diet, because there's a, there's some misunderstanding and, you know, the variability in the definition of Mediterranean diet. Some people think Mediterranean diet is just fish and cheese and olive oil and some pasta. And another feels that it's that's you know, usually peasant the, That's food. usually the image used to market it, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Time magazine, right? A lady sitting uh, next to a lake and just eating fish. So I wanted to to study the relationship, but I also wanted to see how the Mediterranean diet was scored. What does it mean to adhere to a Mediterranean diet if you're living in Washington Heights in New York, right? So uh, my mentors and I, we we looked at it and uh, we created the Mediterranean diet score. And when you look at it, you see that people get a higher score for the Mediterranean diet when they consume fruits, vegetables, whole grains, legumes, nuts and seeds, and a higher ratio of polyunsaturated fats to saturated fats, which essentially means fats that are derived from plants. And you get a low score if you consume meat, poultry, and dairy. That was it. Um, As far as fish is concerned, it's the omega-3 fatty acid that seems to be the beneficial aspect of it. And if you're getting it from fish versus animal, it doesn't really matter. It's mm. as long as you're getting some. The fish one's interesting, isn't it? Because across the literature, it's like, it's quite hard to work out whether mm. fish is a, a healthful addition to a diet. Is that person getting a good outcome because it's in the context of a diet that includes a whole lot of whole food plants? Is it the omega-3 that's most important? Like when you look at across the whole literature, yeah. where do you guys sort of land on that? So uh, we think the data on fish is murky because it's always compared against, you know, worse stuff like chicken or beef and things mm-hmm. of that. And the majority of data. Mm-hmm. There is some data that shows that fish in itself, when it's compared to even um, that there seems to be benefit. But I think we think that it's not the fish. It's actually all the other things that if somebody's choosing to eat fish, 
and not other poultry and you know beef and that means that they're conscious and they're aware and all they're also eating other healthful things. Definitely. I mean, like you said, like so a pescatarian diet, someone who chooses to adopt that. Yes. Yeah. Which may be different to why someone adopts, say, a vegetarian diet, right. because it could be an ethical component to that decision. Exactly. As, as exactly. opposed to health. It gets very hard then to start teasing out this in the in the studies, right? right. right. And in fact, is, yeah. most of the studies haven't done a good job of teasing out vegetarian diet as it pertains to healthful vegetarian diet. Because a lot of studies, when they look at the vegetarian or vegan diet or vegetarian, it's just blunt. Anybody who's been vegetarian mm. and vegan, and a great majority of those who are vegetarian or vegan, they're not eating necessarily healthy foods. Mm. They're, they're you know, Oreos and, you know. Um, there really should be an index applied yes. to all of the the different dietary patterns, the the omnivorous one, yes. the pescatarian one. I mean, that's all. That's probably just going to be healthy. Yeah. Then the the vegetarian and the vegans. Yeah. All of their diets should basically be scored on like a unhealthy version of that diet to a more healthy. So Correct. true. That I, would be ideal. Yeah, I really think that the one population that is speaking to more health and nothing else is the pescatarian. So it gets a disproportionate positive score. Because it's already selecting for those who are health aware. They're not coming to pescatarian because of, you know, um, ethical reasons or environmental reasons. They're coming to it for health, only health. Why would you otherwise choose not to eat the rest of the stuff? So they're disproportionately selective for health. Uh, so if in any study, and there aren't that many studies actually, where they're looking like as if pescatarian is healthier, it's because of that disproportionate selection for health. Whereas in vegan vegetarian, that's not the case. A disproportionate number of people that are going to vegan or vegetarian are going into it because of environmental mm. or animal rights or something of that nature. And particularly is, a lot of those databases, the older databases. Yeah, agree. Exactly. Yes. Exactly. Yeah. It'd, be, it'd be interesting to see if, you know, in the next 10, 15 years, there's some different cohorts followed. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It would be really interesting to to look at their dietary patterns. And now with technology getting better and data capture getting better, I think it's going to be an exciting time to see, to look at, you know, changes in health and changes in biomarkers and people eating a healthy plant-based mm-hmm. diet versus an unhealthy plant-based okay, diet. Okay. Let's, let's just close the loop on the California teacher yes. study. So yeah. You're getting there, so you were, you were, you, you yeah, identified I love that. the digressions. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, um, so, so basically Mediterranean diet was, you know, inversely associated with total strokes, ischemic strokes and hemorrhagic strokes, which means that if people adhere to a Mediterranean diet, they had lower risk of total strokes, ischemic strokes and hemorrhagic strokes. And when we teased it out, we created a um, adherence system, which means, you know, stepwise adherence to the diet. And every step of adhering to the diet also reduced stroke, which was incredible, which meant that, you know, it's not an all or none phenomenon. Every step of increasing mm. your, the, the good components, uh, the, the plant-based components ended up reducing stroke. And, you know, it went on up to about 44% total and decreasing red meat, e- eggs, and poultry. poultry. Yes, sources right. of saturated fat um, yeah. reduce the risk of stroke. It kind of got a little, you know, murky at the end because the number of hemorrhagic strokes was very small. So the relationship became not significant. And you see that in a lot of databases. When the numbers are smaller, the relationship can't be really teased out. But for not total, powerful enough. Correct. But for total stroke in general, yeah, Mediterranean diet, which is mostly the plant-based components seem to be very helpful. And one of the other interesting things that I found out was that this particular population, they weren't consuming 
olive oil as much as other populations, uh, like the Predimet population that was, you know, studied in Spain, in California back in the 1990s. I, I suppose the trend of adding extra virgin olive oil to your food really wasn't hit. really there. And so we saw different, you know, varieties of vegetable oils being consumed instead of olive oil, which is really interesting. So despite all of that, they were able to reduce their risk of stroke. Hmm. You mentioned Predimet. Maybe let's quickly gloss over that. So the Predimet diet was interesting because it was the first essentially clinical trials that looked at the effect of variations of Mediterranean diet and cardiovascular outcome. So there were three groups. One group was Mediterranean diet plus extra virgin olive oil. The second group was Mediterranean diet plus nuts. And then the third um, group, which was a comparison group, was quote-unquote low-fat diet. And I'm saying quote-unquote because when they did an analysis later on, they essentially, they're, they're, yeah, yeah, they hadn't really changed anything. And they found that, that the Mediterranean diet with extra virgin olive oil and nuts reduced the risk of cardiovascular disease. But the one, the one element that remained significant after the analysis was stroke. So stroke mm-hmm. risk was reduced significantly with that diet. And you see that in multiple other populations as well. In the Northern Manhattan study, they found the same thing. And in some of the other ones that looked at specific elements, they also found that Mediterranean diet reduced the risk of stroke. It's, it, so it's th- that's interesting. The, the control group one is interesting in that study because you'll see people cite that and say, look, see, a high-fat diet is better than a low-fat diet. Yeah. But the control group, as you said, didn't, they no. didn't adopt a, a low-fat diet. Correct. They were told to, and I think it dropped like 2% or something. Yeah, tiny, two From like 41% to 39% of calories. Correct. Right. Um, that leads me to my next question. Yeah. And it, it, it speaks to, I guess, stroke, but it probably speaks to dementia and everything. What's your stance on the percentage of calories from fat in an ideal diet, or is it more just the source that is most important? So far, I think it's the source. So far, it's the ratio of polyunsaturated fats to saturated fats that matters the most. And I know that, you know, there, there are certain individuals and, and even physicians who um, propose a very low-fat diet, a whole food plant-based diet, and they've shown amazing results with that. But when it comes to the brain, with, with the current knowledge that we have and with the current data that we have, it looks like it's the source that more polyunsaturated fats and monounsaturated fats is better for brain health. Definitely not saturated fats. That's, that's been bad for, for sure. many reasons for all diseases of the yeah. brain. The proportion is difficult to figure out at this point. In fact, we're doing a review right now, comprehensive review, two reviews. One is um, brain health and and fat in the older population. And then another one, which we're becoming more and more interested in this because we're we're a little worried, the children. Mm. Because there's different requirements, right? Completely. I mean, this brain is growing at an exponential Mm. rate as as a child. Like the kids have a much higher fat requirement. They do. They do. So so we're doing two studies and we're thinking... well, we'll see the data. I mean, I can't. Ex- I, that's the yeah. one rule I always. <laughs> It'll be interesting to, to see. Yeah. When, yes. when when you um, look at say polyunsaturated fats, like yeah. something else that I find very interesting is like both omega six and omega three are essential 
fatty acids, right? And we tend to always talk about omega-3s. Omega-6s, is that something you've looked at? Uh, are these bad inflammatory fats like they're labeled as or, or how do you see them? They're not bad. They're part of a human system. I mean, there are pathways. I mean, they're beautiful pathways. I can I get excited about these things on a Friday night. That's kind of weird. But I'm already <laughs> married, so I'm weird. <laughs> so it, it, omega-6 is a pathway that's needed in the body. Pro-inflammation. Inflammation is something we need. Yeah. And pro-coagulant. Coagulation is something we need. Omega-3 is the other way. And it's more to it than that for simplicity. So what happens is, as we get older, cumulative inflammation actually becomes a baseline of our state. So what happens in, as we're younger, there's an inflammation and there's all kinds of reasons for inflammation. You know, I'm older, I did pull-ups and I hurt my arm, my, my wrist. That's an inflammation. So the body is going there to fix it. And you know, there's a cut, there's an inflammation. There's the arterial damage because of high blood pressure. Inflammation, the b- different causes, all kinds of different. Inflammation is the body's response to fix that thing. Uh, sometimes uh, immunoglobulins, sometimes macrophages, sometimes natural killer cells, whatever it is, it's, it's the body's response. But as we get older, or if the inflammation becomes the dominant background, it never goes down. It becomes a They're dominant chronic. background. Yeah. One of the things that happens is it creates these proteins that are not eliminated quickly enough, bad proteins, the byproducts. And they can accumulate inside the cell, almost like garbage accumulating in your house, then you can't even get out of the house and the house falls apart. Or it, they actually then start creating damage in the walls of vessels. So this baseline inflammation becomes the background noise. We kind of cheat towards that. We want to now create more anti-inflammatory and less uh, pro-inflammatory processes. That's why we cheat towards omega-3. Of course, there's much more complexity to this, but but I, I like this analogy of garbage and accumulating and we were trying to reduce it. So we cheat that way. And that's why we want more anti-inflammatories, omega-3 pathways, the, you know, the ALA, EPA, DHA. All of these fats have different functions. For the brain though, we don't need fat, at least for the nat- for the normal space of time. Let's say- Ex- Explain this because I've written about this in my book and I think it's very interesting because yes. people will say, well, there's X amount of cholesterol and saturated fat in the brain. Doesn't that mean you need to eat it? No, no, I I just wanted to jump in, jump in because, um, (laughs) you know, the kind of fat that we have in our brain is structural fat. It's not energy fat. It's not the battery packs that we carry around in our belly or in our arms to use when we're in starvation mode. And when we are in starvation mode, the brain doesn't go, start go ahead and eating out those structural fats. The only fat that we need on a regular basis is the omega threes. Other than that, you know, people actually say about 70 to 80% of your brain is is fat. That's not true. They've actually done a lot of calculations and they found out that what they look at is water as well as fat. And so when you look at fat alone, the percentage of fat in the brain is quite low, as low as 11 to 15%. Yeah. Wow. So, so and, and, and dietary cholesterol, right? Right. Does that even cross the, the blood it does, area? Yeah, it, it doesn't. doesn't. It doesn't. So the brain itself actually creates cholesterol as well if it needs it. I mean, what is cholesterol for? It's a cellular wall, a structural fat, hmm. not outside. Not So it doesn't need it. It, it doesn't even cross the blood-brain barrier. The blood-brain barrier is an incredibly hermetically sealed environment. Nothing gets through that. In fact, not even viruses and bacteria for the most part right. get through it on rare occasions. In fact, if they do get through it on a regular basis, you know there's something wrong with your blood-brain barrier. You don't need any of that. What you do need is omega-3s. Now, that's why I worry about earlier in life, 
and a lot of these online venues, these are arguments, fights about, oh, you don't need any, we should never speak beyond our data, mm. you know, and, and definitely no, don't make it ideological. Mm. For most adults, we know that the only thing you need is omega-3s. We can talk about how you As get that. As in like meat. ALA from plant foods? Yes, absolutely. And you'll convert enough. Most people would convert enough. Yeah, I, I'm the first argument people make, oh, but they don't convert that much. It's yeah. 10%. That's plenty. If you take chia or flaxseed, yeah. a couple of uh, tea, uh, tablespoons, and you're, yeah. you're more than enough. Yeah. Right? And, yeah. And they say, but how do you know enough? Well, how do you know enough? Because the, the same argument that you make that how much do you really need of DHA and EPA, it comes from population studies. Mm. So given that data, the amount of conversion is more than enough, 10%, then EPA, then DHA, uh, and we're, we're fine with, with, the, with, the, with the dietary that you get from, from plants. And then the, you're saying it may be different if you're pregnant or if you're an, an infant or, or a toddler um, right. in terms of the total requirement Correct. and whether they would be best off getting that through chia seeds or hemp seeds or whatever, or a DHA EPA supplement. supplement. Yeah. I'm, I'm not, yeah. you you're saying it. you're still reviewing Yeah, that. So we have to get the magical thinking out of this, the evolutionary magical, like evolution took care of us. Uh, so therefore, well, why are all pregnant women taking folate? Hmm. Why are we all taking folate? Well, not even, why are we pregnant women taking folate? <laughs> <laughs> it's a very equal relationship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes yeah, yeah. I feel, uh, um, my feminine side You can borrow it if you over. want to, that's fine. But um, it's uh, because evolution doesn't always do the right thing. Mm. So we need more folate so that you don't get those spina bifida and uh, spinal uh, defects and all that. There's likelihood that you probably need a little more fat, especially the omega-3 fats as a supplement. We have to look at that data. The brain is growing so rapidly yeah. in the first few, nine months and then after birth that uh, the requirements are completely different than an adult. Okay. So you can't uh, make that conclusion. Okay. So that's fat. That kind of rounds out, I guess, the the, the food side of things. Mm-hmm. Other risk factors outside of diet for for stroke, things like smoking, alcohol. What what other things should people be mindful of? So it has to do with environmental factors and then behavioral factors. Behavioral factors are things like exercising and smoking and um, you know, making sure that your stress stress levels are down. And then the obviously I, I forgot about um, the smoking um, element of, of it as well. So people who smoke, they have a very high risk of um, stroke, both ischemic and hemorrhagic stroke. Physical activity is closely related to risk of ischemic and hemorrhagic stroke. But it seems that the main factor that drives the incidence and prevalence of stroke are the vascular risk factors that end up as a result of the combined behavioral and environment that one person is. So people developing high blood pressure because they eat too much salt, bad food, lack of exercise and smoking, Mm -hmm. or people who have high cholesterol because of bad food, or people who actually end up having some level of microvascular disease because of just the constant high glucose level because of their prediabetes or diabetes. And when they have looked at the impact of each and every element, there was a beautiful paper that was published back in, I believe it was 2016, the global burden of uh, stroke, the global burden of disease um, defined by stroke. It shows that food is on the very top. It's actually lack of fruits, 
high sodium levels, mm. lack of vegetable, lack of fiber. So four of the factors are related to food. And then comes uh, smoking and then comes physical uh, activity or lack of exercise. 90% of strokes exist because of modifiable risk factors. Let, let me ask you a question because that's, you know, as you sort of reel off those things, I think most listeners are aware. Yeah. Eat more mm-hmm. fruits and vegetables, less processed food with salt and less takeaway and do more exercise. Why do you think that message has fallen on deaf ears, so to speak? Hey friends, me again. Quick note to let you know, I have a brand new, completely complimentary two-week plant-based meal plan on my website. Inside contains delicious breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snack recipes, along with a complete breakdown of the nutritional information for each. Whether you're looking to add one plant-based meal to your weekly regime or go full plant, I'm sure you will find this resource helpful. You can get your copy today at plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. That's plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. Okay, let's get back into it. It's the, it's the temporality of it. People can make a grand statement that stands for longer time, but they don't make it for the present time. The, the whole thought process, here's the behavioral thing. Human thought process is divided into, or separated into short-term thinking and long-term thinking. We're not long-term thinkers. I mean, we talk long-term, but our behavior is determined by short, for majority of population, by short-term drives. Mm. Yeah, vegetables are great, but right now, what's, what's happening right now? That's the driving force of behavior for great majority of population. So our job is not, one part is to, of course, still spread the news because there's a lot of, no, at this point, instead of more of the good news going out to the public, actually, there's more noise coming out. Now, all this thing like fat's not bad based on tenuous data. So spread the news, but also give people the environment and the capacity to make the short-term decisions. It's the carrot and stick thing. Tell people the impact of stroke in their families, the impact of Alzheimer's and vascular dementia in their families. Every family after 65 in certain populations have vascular dementia. We go to these populations and it's all related to environment. Every 65-year-old has vascular dementia. It's never been diagnosed because that's not a diagnosis code, Mm. but everybody. And when people realize that, then that becomes the stick. You know, that becomes the sense of urgency. And then the next step right after should be tools, present tools. What can I do so that there's no sense of deprivation? Mm. So that's where people come in as far as these amazing people that create the kind of foods. uh, Well, Aisha is one of them, but that, that can be tasty, healthy, and easy, and availability. Hmm. The concept of food deserts are real and it's, it's everywhere. You know, we live in Redondo Beach where not only do people know, but they come to our study, they come with books that they've read five, six books on plant-based, but you go just 10 miles inward you can't get fresh fruits. Yeah, I, and and when I said I don't think people know, I was referring to that population. Yes. I think when you look at stroke, well, hmm. so I'm a stroke neurologist. Yeah, there's yeah. obviously a big difference right. through the um, different socioeconomic. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So you know, as a stroke neurologist, I work in the 
I work in the hospital. I work in the emergency room too. And I see people coming in with strokes and um, you would assume that they would know how to take good care of themselves. I mean, obviously giving them the benefit of the doubt of life and whatever, you know, interfering with living a healthy life. But a good proportion of people actually don't really make a good link between what they're doing on a daily basis and how it affects them and how it actually ended up them having a stroke. And, you know, there, there are the multiple actually evidence-based, you know, reports on this. Take the REGARD study. The REGARD study is a study that is done in the University of Alabama where they look at um, stroke in the stroke belt, which is, you know, a combination of states in the United States, you know, the Al- Alabama, Georgia, Tennessee. Tennessee, North and South Carolina. And they have twice to even three times higher risk of stroke compared to national numbers. And when you go in those communities, and it's not about anything else but access and also perception and understanding of vascular risk factors, most of these individuals don't understand that the food that they eat actually helps them or causes disease. So I think there's a variability in the understanding of yeah. you know the effect of modifiable mm. lifestyle risk factors on brain health. Mm. I always say that uh, real estate is about location, location, location. Public health is about access, access, access. Access to information, ubiquitous. I mean, when, when we talk about culture, culture is when ideas around the concept become ubiquitous. So it's not like you give it to them. They turn left, they see that information. They turn right where we live. There are, you know, these health food restaurants, everything, everywhere. But other places, the information is lacking. Mm. So access to information, access to resources, and access to public health resources that actually promulgate and spread that. Yeah. In these regions, there's no access to information, or at least accurate information, or information that connects their current behavior to the ultimate outcome. And access to resources, absolutely not. Yeah. So if you can just take care of those two, you'll significantly change healthcare. Mm, yeah, I think I think I actually think that's a fair point. Like even if someone, now that I think about it, thinks, you know, in the back of their mind, even if they kind of loosely know that fruits and vegetables are healthy, they probably don't understand the power of those decisions on a day-on-day basis, Very true. accumulating over decades and the connection between that and a stroke. Yeah. yeah. I've had patients in my room where they've had a minor stroke and they come for a follow-up and I pull up their CT angiogram of their brain and I go down from the neck to the brain and I show them like, look, these are your arteries and they have hardened and they have plaque in them. Do you know where the plaque came from? The plaque actually came from the food that you're eating. And if you're able to reduce that food, if you're able to reduce the bad fats and you know, instead of eating a burger, maybe eat a salad or a lentil soup, these can actually open up and they can actually get more blood to your brain. And when they make that connection, when they see their brain and they see the atherosclerosis, the large, humongous plaques in their arteries, oh, something kicks in. Mm -hmm. And I work with individuals who don't even know what lentils are. Ask Mm. Dean. We have cans of bean in our clinic room, and we actually basically go over what a healthy meal should look like with the kind of resources that they have. A lot of people are on food stamps and kind of identifying what to get from the food bank that is healthy for their brain. So it's important for us to modify our approach when Mm -hmm. it comes to public health education. Definitely. And, uh, you know, I guess to that point as well, people are arguably more motivated after health scare. Yeah. yeah. To make significant change and to invest the time into that, exploring that. Right. Absolutely. 
fortunately or unfortunately, a lot of times it's too late, but, you know, um, working with people who have had minor strokes, I think that's one of the most Mm -hmm. rewarding experiences ever because you've been through it. You've known how it feels to be paralyzed. You know how it feels to lose your vision or your speech or your inability to think. And I think we work with probably one of the most motivated population there. One of the patients that Aisha is dealing with, uh, um, a young man, who, and, and by the way, in the populations we're dealing with, and, and the, this, um, is in, this is in Loma Linda, right? Yes, it's yeah, in Loma Linda. Not the Loma Linda itself. They're very healthy. But right outside where the, we work half a day in the in the uh, free clinic. Is that San Bernardino? In San Bernardino, yes. Yeah. And have, we yeah. get 40-year-olds with stroke. Yeah, wow. You know, 40, 50-year-olds. And a young man that you're dealing with yes. who had a stroke became highly motivated but Aisha is actually teaching him on a regular basis how to, so when they come to our clinic, it's not the same, you know, tapping the knee with a hammer, a smile and writing a prescription on the way out. It's, you know, teaching them and we have a whole, you know, uh, what kind of foods they're supposed to eat, what kind of, because if you don't give them the tools, what happens is actually even worse than you think. So for a while they're scared and they're searching and they're in their search, they find multiple things that are contradictory. And then they quickly rest, settle back to, mm. to the baseline. And given that they just had a stroke, it's actually basically giving up on life. So if you don't give people the right tools and the right information, you're leaving them more disheartened and at a worse shape than otherwise. Yeah, I had um, Dr. Renee Thomas. Yeah. I had, yes. I had her on the, the podcast a while back and she spoke to the sort of socioeconomic difference between San Bernardino and Loma Linda mm-hmm. um, yeah. in terms of the, the population. Actually, I caught up with her. She was at an event last week and she was talking about a like a meal plan thing that, that she put together. I think it was $3 a day or something. I yeah. think it was for yeah. residents of San Bernardino. Of course. Yeah. 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 People think it's more They're expensive to, to eat healthy. They don't know that actually it's not. You just have to give them the, mm. the, the, that knowledge, that tool. Yeah. Okay, so to summarize this one and to round it out to the listeners, your sort of take-home messages in terms of lifestyle to avoid stroke, what types of uh, habits or, or, or modifications to their life should they try and implement where possible? I think the most important thing is food, eating um, lots of fruits and vegetables, beans, we're switching from animal protein to plant proteins, switching from animal fats to plant fats, and, you know, focusing more on consuming foods that have been associated with reduced risk of stroke, like greens and beans and berries and nuts and seeds, and trying to incorporate your movement and exercise on a regular basis. If somebody's smoking, they should stop smoking. Just by doing these three I think we can reduce um, 80% of strokes. 80% of strokes are preventable by just addressing these three things. And we know that, you know, by addressing all of these behavioral and uh, metabolic risk factors, we can avert more than three quarters of um, the global stroke uh, burden. Three quarters of the global stroke burden can be averted by addressing these things. And I think that's profound. Uh, Right now, the American Heart Association and International you know, Stroke Association, they're all focused on quick fixes with the, the clot-busting medication and acute treatment of strokes. And I'm really hoping that there is more light and more focus on preventive measures because we have to look at the entire spectrum of health. Beautifully put. Now, one last one, Brain Health and Beyond. Yes. Fantastic podcast. Thank which you. Everyone should jump over and uh, 
get involved in, you will you will not be disappointed. You were telling me earlier you have an episode coming out. I think that you're planning that. To me, sounds very interesting. I think you were mentioning the sort of nine months, the importance of nine months. Um, yeah, there are two podcasts that we are very excited about. One is about women's brain health, which is um, we we've done quite a bit of research in that, and yeah. and the differences and how we should approach it, and especially hormone treatment and all these new data that's coming out. So that's going to be the next one because March is Women's Health Month, so we'll focus on on women's issues. Second one is children's brain. And we think that that's critical because we're, we, we're not approaching it properly. We're just bluntly approaching it. All these diseases, ADHD, everything else, majority of the childhood diseases, those that are, that are not genetic, are significantly affected by environmental factors. And so by then, I think we'll have our review and we can talk about that as well. Awesome. So excited about that. Cool, guys. It's always a pleasure to have you on and hopefully you can come back and do this again with me soon. I can't wait. Maybe in Australia next time. <laughs> yes. Maybe we'll come sure. visit you yeah. there. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Now, um, if someone wants to connect with you on socials, what's the best way of finding you? We are Team Sharesi on social, on Facebook, Instagram, and on Twitter. And um, they can contact us through there. At uh, Sharesi is S H E R Z A I. It's right. not the most common Australian name. I'll so. put the I'll put it into <laughs> yes. the, the yeah. show notes. But yeah. um, yeah, cool. I look forward to it and um, say hi to Sophie and Alex for me. For sure, Thank for you sure, so dude. Much. Thank you. There we go, friends. I hope you took something away from this conversation. I really do love those guys and and really do appreciate them taking the time to sit down with me and to share that information with us. Be sure to let both Aisha and Dean know how this one landed for you by connecting with them on social media at Team Sherzai. That is T-E-A-M-S-H-E-R-Z-A-I. And of course, if you know someone who you think would benefit from listening to this episode, please share it with them. And if you haven't already and are enjoying the show, please leave a review on iTunes, on the podcast app. I'd love to read your feedback. Coming up in the next few weeks is Rich Roll and then nephrologist Shivam Joshi. And as I said in the intro, more than likely an episode on COVID-19. One final note, my book is out later this year and I'm going to be doing an announcement soon to share the cover and title. If you want to hear about this first and also receive lots of free nutrition tips and scientific study breakdowns in the in the lead up to the book being available, please go to plantproof.com and at the bottom of the homepage sign up to the newsletter. That's all for this one. Thank you for tuning in and hanging out with me until the end here. I really do appreciate all of you. I look forward to joining you again next week. 